This is HPR episode 1953 entitled, An Interview with David Wilson of the Software Freedom School. It is hosted by David Whitman and is about 55 minutes long. The summary is, starting with an outtake, David Whitman talks to David Wilson about Software Freedom School. This episode of HPR is brought to you by anhonesthost.com. Get 15% discount on all shared hosting with the offer code HPR15. That's HPR15. Better web hosting that's honest and fair at anhonesthost.com. Strangely, my favorite episodes are the ones that are entirely impromptu and full of background noise, and you can hear the person's daughter come up, and you know he takes care of her question, and then goes back to whatever it was that he was talking about. There, there's something very organic about those sorts of shows, and I really like them. As a matter of fact, one of my favorite shows didn't have any talking at all it was a guy it sounded like he was hiking alongside a highway and going to work and there was something artsy about that that i just loved yeah some of my favorites are the ones where guys are using their dremel tool to fix a pump house and other things but i really do enjoy the technical episodes also because i feel like that the internet provides a really nice learning channel yeah totally agree uh, as a matter of fact, I'm going to be doing more online stuff with SFS. We have been, we have done a few things um, that are kind of online using our Big Blue Button server, but uh, it's it's always been challenging uh, to get Big Blue Button to behave and to have all the students be ready at the same time. Um, and so I think we're going to move that to maybe more screencasty approach where we just go voice and then do uh, a recorded screencast so that everybody can just get onto YouTube or um, or onto uh, download an OGV file or something. But OGV files can even be challenging for uh, Windows users. But yeah, I understand. And go. I think we ought to start by introducing ourselves, and I'll introduce myself and then have you introduce yourself and your project so that, and I'd like to have you do that because um, I know my name, and I think I know your name, and but sometimes I goof it up. So my name is David Whitman. I'm from Oregon in the U.S., and I'm talking to David Wilson, and why don't you introduce yourself and your project, David? Very good. Uh, my name is David Wilson, and I am the founder of the Software Freedom School in Denver, Colorado. 
It's a project where we try to teach free software in a free software way. Uh, the primary difference between what I see um, uh, IT schools doing uh, that teach whatever software uh, happens to be popular or marketable uh, and what I want to do as Software Freedom School is um, keep the software freedom um, philosophy uh, underpinning everything that we do. So literally everything that we make and everything that is made for us is Creative Commons uh, in some way or another. Either it's GPL if it's code or it's Creative Commons uh, if it's material that isn't code. So documents and um, media, uh, everything that we make is, is reusable. So there's no no restriction on anything that a student or participant might get. They can take it and remake it into something else. And then if they want if they want to do a class and even charge for the seats, then we not only allow that, but we encourage it and help them. Before we go any further, I think it would be, since I'm quite disorganized at times, I think it would be good for you to give your contact information. So if people want to contact you or check you out on the internet, they're able to do that. So why don't you do that now? Tell us how to contact you and the, any other information you want to share. Uh, that's a great idea. Uh, let me start with my mobile number. Uh, and I share it because I actually do welcome calls uh, about anything having to do with Linux or free software or um, just shooting the food or helping, uh, helping with the school. Uh, and that's 720-333-5267. Uh, my primary email address is dlwilson, with two L's, at thegeek.nu. And the school's uh, URL is a lot simpler than either of those. It's simply sofree.us. Uh, we try to keep the website up to date with all of the things that we're doing for the next six months, and I try to keep... Uh, at least one event per month uh, for six months ongoing. Okay, could um, you share with us then your qualifications, your education, and or just how you got into free software and so that people have kind of an idea of what your skill levels are? I'd love to. The short version of my how I got to Linux is that a friend of mine showed a version of uh, or showed me Red Hat 5.2, and I was unimpressed because I was a completely, uh, completely Windows guy at the time. And I said, I don't understand what's the point of this thing that you're showing me. It, um, it has Windows and it has a command line, but what does it do that Windows doesn't already do? And uh, it wasn't until a few months later when I wanted to put up a for my friends and family and kind of provide a smaller, less expensive uh, ISP that I found out that you couldn't do a lot of things affordably within proprietary software. And that led me, and I didn't know the terms proprietary and free software at that time, but um, I did know that I couldn't find a mail server that wasn't going to cost me an arm and a leg or suck. Um, and so I found uh, University of Washington's IMAP server and decided that that's what I was going to use, but that was going to require me to 
learned that strange thing that my friend Chris Lees had shown me, uh, Linux. And so it took me two weeks to become conversant enough to get a, uh, an, a basic INAP server put together. Uh, but after that, I was hooked. Uh, and I started to discover the philosophy of it and the things that Richard Stallman teaches and uh, really fell in love uh, not just with the software, which is fun and awesome, but with the collaborative, um, permissive way of dealing with the code and developing the code and sharing knowledge back and forth. And just, it's, it's really good science and good humanity nature. Not to be too romantic about it, but that was when I started to go, wow, this is really great. This is what I want to get into. Well, around the same time, I was getting into training because my manager at uh, MCI wanted us to start up a training department because we were trying to get uh, our technicians, you know, all a little bit sharper. And so most of my efforts were very Microsoft-centric at that time, but that ended up being a recurrent theme in my career. And so I got Microsoft certified to teach in 2000 and have been teaching, have been swinging my career into now, all I do is Linux and free software all the time. Um, when I'm at work, I do Linux, Linux systems administration with a specialization in automation. So um, DevOps without actually saying that word out loud. Um, and very ops-centric DevOps. Um, I don't work on the applications. I only work on infrastructure for the applications. Uh, and teaching is uh, all at night. That's, that's, I do all my teaching now through SFS, but I used to do it uh, professionally as well. Um, I did a lot of, uh, I did a, what do you think? Uh, six or seven years as an MCT. No, oh, it has to be more than that. Uh, 2000 is when I became an MCT. And 2011, so it was an MCT for about 11 years. Uh, Microsoft certified trainer that is. Um, I finally let that go in 2011 when I started getting more into the uh, Linux side of things, and if they're, I'm looking for a way to become a Red Hat certified trainer so that I can um, have some sort of a certification that says that I know how to do this stuff, um, that I can uh, keep doing the upkeep on, but it doesn't make sense to maintain MCT and be teaching Linux. I have a question about the Red Hat certification, and what I'd like to know is how difficult it is to obtain that, and then what has to be done to keep the certification up. Sure. The three there are actually three certifications uh, or three kind of certification camps that I keep track of right now. And I'm very Linux centric. And so there are probably programming certifications and things that I don't keep track of. The ones that I do keep track of are LPI's certifications, uh, the LPIC one, and LPIC 2 and LPIC 3. Um, and I, my uh, Linux camp was very 
geared toward the Arctic one certification. Uh, this year, I'm going to go through a big rewrite and I'm going to target the Linux Foundation certified uh, administrator instead uh, because that's a hands on exam. And I think that hands on exams are absolutely the way to go, which brings me to Red Hat. Um, and Red Hat's uh, got two certifications that I keep an eye on uh, Red Hat Certified Systems Administrator and Red Hat Certified Engineer. Uh, I have the, they're, let's start with, they're both practical exams. The way that you achieve the certification is by taking a practical exam where you sit down at a computer and you actually accomplish some list of tasks. Uh, it's, it's, it's a well-known secret that the Red Hat exams start out where you're sitting down at a computer that you don't have a password to. And so the very first thing that you have to prove you know how to do is take over administrative duties from someone who's no longer there or for whatever reason. Administrative password is gone. Um, so, have, are you still there? I just want to make sure because I just got a chime. Yeah, I, I'm here. I heard your chime. It was kind of interesting. Actually, you sound clearer right now than you have in oh, the past. Oh, good. Well, I, I, I can't think of any good reason why I haven't changed uh, location, but uh, but that's fortunate. I'm going to go back to uh, what I was doing then, and actually I'm going to dismiss that prompt because otherwise it will re-chime in 10 minutes. There we go. All right, so let me come back to where I was. We were talking about Red Hat, and I was saying that I prefer practical exams. Um, all of the certification providers are moving to practical exams because they do a much, much better job of measuring the actual capabilities of the engineer. Uh, they, instead of getting certified that you know some trivia about um, editors, you are certifying that you can actually make some changes to some text file. Uh, instead of certifying that you know some trivia about Apache's uh, web server stack, you have a challenge that you actually have to provision some websites within Apache's web server stack. Um, and that ends up being a much more accurate, meaningful certification than, um, than the multiple choice exams. So everybody's moving to that. Uh, one of the biggest providers in that space is, um, oh golly, uh, TrueAbility. TrueAbility is providing virtual machines for testing for, for SUSE. I just recently took one of their practical exams, and that was a lot of fun and very challenging. Um, so Red Hat has their two certification levels. They actually have more, but I only keep track of the two. Um, their beginner level is the Red Hat Certified Systems Administrator, which is a challenging exam. Um, and, and a good practical exam. Uh, and then their certified engineer, which requires that you're already an SA, a uh, sysadmin, 
Um, and then you take another exam and that uh, it gets you their intermediate level certification. And then they have other exams that give you certificates of expertise. And I think that they have one where you have six certificates of expertise and then you get our Red Hat certified architect or something like that. But I don't track that very closely. Go ahead and finish your thought there, and then we'll, I want to kind of jump to another okay. subject. Um, the maintenance and cost uh, are more in time, I would say, than the, the time spent studying is the biggest cost to maintain a set of certifications. The, uh, you have to recertify with most of the certifications every couple of years or every version or every couple of versions. It really depends on the certification. Uh, CompTIA has their Linux Plus certification and they expect you to recertify every, every two years, I think it is, with them. Um, SUSE ties the certification to a particular version, so you might be a SUSE certified Linux professional on version 12. And then you keep that certification forever, but since it's tied to the version, it will be more or less relevant depending on who you're talking to. Um, Red Hat's certification is title centric and it expires every other version. So. Right now, I'm an RHCE, but um, I need to re—I need to refresh for version seven uh, because I'm an RHCE on version five, um, and I'm an RHCSA because I did refresh that certification on version seven. Um, you don't technically have to refresh the sysadmin part of it, uh, but I chose to because I want to. Uh, stay in touch with the content of the SA exam so that I can help people to get their sysadmin credential and be more, more focused in my approach. Uh, the reason why a person would want to get certification at all is that it just gives you a quick kind of a button approach of saying, yeah, I know what I'm talking about and I'm certified on this. And then if that person that you're speaking with knows what that certification does uh, and is familiar with its quality, then it gives them a quick metric uh, of value with regard to your experience or at least expertise. Okay, on um, the 10th of or the 21st of October on 2013, an episode that was Hacker Public Radio 1361, you were interviewed by, I don't really remember who it was, and it was the SSF and Linux camp, and you talked about um, your project and introduced the community to it. And I noticed when I re-listened to the episode this morning, and I noticed that the teaching method that you use apparently in Linux camp, or at that time you did, was pretty much along the lines of this certification method that you've been talking about just now? I always like to target some certification in, in all of the training that I do. Um, I prefer to. Sometimes there's not a certification available and then I 
I usually stop short of developing my own um, pass-fail exam um, because I, coming from the IT training background, I saw that uh, certificates of attendance didn't really weigh very well with um, people that were interviewing because all it certified was that you could hold a chair down for a day or three days or a week. Um, and so I'm really big on exam-based certifications or, and in particular, uh, performance exam-based certifications. So whenever I have a topic that I want to present, I try to find a certification that applies to it. Uh, with Linux Camp, that's going to be the uh, Linux Foundation Certified Sysadmin. But I've also done, and I'm doing actually right now, uh, study groups around Red Hat and maybe someday I'll do something in the classroom with regard to Red Hat. And then I don't want to do all of the teaching, of course. I want other people to be able to get involved. And so what I'm trying to do uh, for that is develop a framework that will make it easier for someone that's a subject matter expert to also become an effective teacher. So I've tried to boil 15 or 20 years of experience in teaching into just a few pages of recommendations that are simple and direct that will allow um, a person to take their particular subject matter expertise and then by a process of just answering some simple questions, develop a curriculum for a class. Uh, and then what I, what I haven't done yet and, and want to do is hopefully allow that same subject matter expert to be able to present in a classroom environment. But the classroom environment, like interviews, requires a lot of thinking on your feet. And um, so, so it can be hard. Uh, it can be hard to become quickly good at classroom teaching. But uh, I think it, translating um, a broad base of experience into teachable moments is not impossible and can be methodized. And so I did develop a little short class called the SFS method, which the 30 second version of it is only spend about 25% of your time talking or maybe, maybe 30 or at most 40 because what you want to do um, and what turns out to be very effective to help people learn, which is what teaching is about, uh, is not to just fire hose them with information, but instead present them with a piece of very important information, put it into context, demonstrate it, and then allow them to, to do it and ideally to do it in a pair scenario because doing it in a pair scenario increases accountability and it increases retention tremendously because it puts the student into the position of teacher with relationship to their partner uh, in the pair. So the, the very, very short version of SFS method is this. Um, do a show and tell because some people learn by listening, some people learn by seeing. Actually, we all learn all these ways, but some one of the ways will be particularly applicable to a student. 
uh, and we all learn very well by doing so, by it's seeing, hearing, doing, and then what it turns out to increase learning retention massively is teaching, reteaching what you've been taught. And that is not a new principle, it was discovered um, way back when, and they call it the nursing school method, see one, do one, teach one. And it, what we try to do with, uh, or what I'm trying to formalize with SFS method is don't just talk, talk briefly, then show, uh, so take, take some feature of the, let's say that you're teaching about a product, take some feature of your product, put it into a context and say, okay, the, the place where you would want to use, let's say I'm teaching um, software RAID today. The place where you would want to use software RAID is in a situation where you have a file system that's very important and you want that file system to always, always be up, even if a disk should fail that's where you might deploy software rate. So now let me show you a situation where I have two hardware disks and I'm going to use a software rate to bundle those disks into a more reliable collection of disks called a RAID. Um, and so then I would demonstrate that. So now the student has heard the thing and they've seen the thing and then one of the usual requirements for um, SFS sessions is everybody brings a laptop and that laptop is running VirtualBox. And then usually we'll recommend a particular distribution of Linux for the virtual machine on which the student operates to be running. And then I'll say, okay, now you do it. Uh, take the virtual machine that you were provided or that you built in preparation for the class and build up a, um, a, RAID, a, a RAID array. And um, what I'd like you to do is partner up with somebody else in the lab. And each of you take the position of novice and expert. And I understand that you're not expert yet in software RAID, but you're going to pretend that you are because this will increase your retention. And it will also uh, give you twice more through this process, this common process of setting up a RAID array. So one of you is going to operate the console and set up the RAID array, and that person will pretend to be the novice, and the other person is going to advise him. Or you can just regard it as pair admin. Either way, you're going to go through it twice. One person operating the keyboard, the other person watching what that person is doing and perhaps advising them and uh, helping them to remember the bits of what I did that they have forgotten. So this is the basis that I was going to say this then is the basis for um, the essential basis for all the classes that you teach is to for someone to be shown and then to actually demonstrate the ability to do that. That's exactly right. And it's it's what I call SFS method. And it's, it hopefully is a framework in which a subject matter expert can present the thing that they're expert in without, create, without committing any of the usual subject matter expert uh, faux pas, which are interesting to another subject matter expert uh, in the same subject matter, but, um, but are uninteresting to the beginner. And 80% of classes are sold to beginners. 
the beginner is the one who's interested in learning about software rate. Um, the person who already knows software rate is not so interested in learning about that. Maybe he wants to learn about performance. And so in, in a way, every class is sold to a beginner because if you already knew the thing, you wouldn't be in the class. Um, so even though, let's say, software RAID may be old to you, performance within software RAID or performance within RAID may be new to you. And so to that extent, you're a beginner there. The secret that SFS tries to, or SFS method rather, tries to make into a, a simple formula is don't dive into history. This, the beginner doesn't care about history. The person that's intermediate does. The person that is intermediate or advanced within a particular topic, they may be very fat, fascinated by all the eight arcane origins of, of Perl or Python or Linux or um, this philosophy of software freedom. But the student generally only wants to know how to solve the problems that they're that they uh, the beginning student wants to know how to solve the problems that they might need to solve tomorrow. And so if we can take a subject matter expert and say, if you're going to take these students after your class and actually use them in your shop uh, to get real work done, um, or use them in your project to get real work done, and, and they're going to be your assistants what are the foundational things that you want them to know before they start assisting you? What are the things that are really important, the, the basic tactics and um, the basic techniques to be functional with your particular technology? And unsurprisingly, that never turns out to be the esoteric details of the history of Linux or software rate or whatever the subject is. The subject matter expert never wants the beginner to know that tomorrow. They want them to know. Um, let's let's take a, let's take Python as the example this time. They want the that learner to know how to use an API and understand um, how APIs are typically laid out. They want them to know how to write a loop and when to use a small collection of variables versus when to use a, an array or a dictionary object and so on. So if we can teach that to a subject matter expert, then a subject matter expert can become an effective teacher. Now I'm sure some of our listeners will want to know how to learn about the SFS method. So do you have a document on that? Um, everything that I have is posted on GitLab right now. Some of the classes that we've done in the past are not presently posted on GitLab because I, I wasn't diligent about making sure that we take a copy of how that repository works or, or looks rather at the time of the delivery of the class. Um, but I'm getting better at it. <laughs> um, every class has a Git repository associated with it. And we, uh, we, we're trying to make that into a routine now. Um, 
everything that I have is on gitlab.com under the slug so free us without the dot uh, our URL is so free.us our slug is so free us and uh, so gitlab.com slash so free us and I think I have SFS method not broken out into a separate class yet I believe it's under the main kind of grab bag of things that haven't yet been turned into a formal class uh, so that'll be so free us just so free us so free us uh, and I think SFS method is in there um, but I'll be breaking it out into its own thing relatively soon because I'm planning to teach it in probably July or August so I'm looking on at right now a thing called the SFS Linux camp two dashes master document which is a CC by SA document that actually came up when I clicked the link on the HPR 1361 yeah that was our first run of Linux camp uh, with 2013 was um, we have run it twice since uh, we did it in 2014 and 2015 um, we've pretty much settled in on running it in August every year and up until next year or up until last year or through let me try that again <laughs> 2013 14 and 15 all targeted the lpi certification level one 2016 and until it's no longer interesting will target the linux foundation certified sysadmin uh, that's the certification that we're targeting and that's a four-day retreat format. That's the only one that we do that way. It's our that's our big that's our big show. Okay, so this document though is really interesting, and I think it has a lot of good material in it. And I was just wanting you to refer whether that's the things you do are still in that document, or um, is I, in fact I enjoyed reading it. And so, do you recommend people grab this and take a look at it? Um. I'm not sure whether you're looking at the flyer, which has the picture of the moose, or whether you're looking at the document that actually drives the class, which has um, every lab uh, phrased as um, you know, some, some verbiage and then a try this. It actually has a bunch of practical notes about how to run a class and, you know, I'm talking about... Um, and like it says for Wednesday, August 21st in the evening, drive right after work and set up the test equipment. So it has good practical information like that. I was kind of, I thought it was a real good um, outline of the practical part of doing a camp. Yep, yep. And that's, that's exactly what that document uh, tries to be. Um, I think that particular year I hadn't broken it out into two separate documents where one document is the class material and the other uh, document is how to run the class. Um, so that one probably has the class material and how to run the class in the same document. And yeah, it makes great reading, uh, especially if you're trying to build something like that. Yes, I want to thank you for putting that out because sometimes this information, the basic stuff, you have to work on it on your own, and as you probably know, or at least I learn this in life, that doing it 
right isn't always what you have happen when you do things the first time. So having a framework is really nice to have. And uh, we're my goal is to get better at that and to present present and use a better framework as time goes by, um, so that anybody that wants to build something similar to SFS can simply look at what SFS is doing and then build one of their own with their particular flavoring. Um, I do ask for attribution, but um, I'm certainly not going to sue anyone ever about anything. So uh, so it's, it's an ask, not a tell. Yeah, and so I want to um, kind of summarize here, or um, I'll just say it this way, that during the day you work, and then at night, you put on the teacher's cape and you do classes. Is that what I'm hearing from you? That's, that's exactly right. Um, I am currently on a, working for Apex Consulting um, on a contract at Comcast doing Linux automation. And so I go and do code things and manage servers all day long. And then I come home and work on SFS at night. And um, so sometimes that means putting together the ways that we do things, and sometimes that means teaching classes. Um, and sometimes it means throwing parties. And teaching classes and throwing parties are my favorite, but, uh, but documenting how we, you know, the, like you said, the step-by-step -step how to do this is also important because I can't teach all the classes. I'm just one guy. And there's lots and lots and lots of uh, folks out there that want to learn the things that we know. So when you give a class, you in this master document, it talks about um, zero to 2,000 cost level. So do you charge for your sessions then that you do? Uh, I always have an ask, and I always have um, a pay what you can. Uh, so my intention is to build a sustainable model. Um, and what I found is that models that are purely gift-based, where um, one puts out a class and then asks for gifts, turn out not to be sustainable. And I'm, I'm sorry to say that, but they don't for me. Uh, and other people may have a different experience, but um, the gifts don't match the costs of providing the class and the cost of um, well, paying the instructor's rent and so on. Um, so in order for something like to be sustainable, um, I think that it's important for an individual or an organization to have an ask price and to say, I really want everybody that comes to this class to give $64 or, um, or in the case of Linux camp to give, um, right around $2,000. Um, and then to provide, a, a, a way for the person that can't pay money to come to the class. Um, and I call that uh, pay what you choose. I don't call it that. I got it from somebody else. Um, and they actually call it pay what you can. Um, and I prefer pay what you choose because I like to think of people as more self-directed. Um, so what we will do is we'll say, 
for this event, the price is this much. Um, and eventually we're going to get to member prices as well so that we can go to a, an even more sustainable model where we have a consistent membership and that membership maybe pays for a building. Wouldn't that be great? Um, and then um, and then we have gifts that, that cause that to vary. But um, we also always want to create an opening for someone that doesn't have an income that allows them to pay for a class. Uh, so maybe they're retired or maybe they're a career switcher or maybe they're just coming straight out of high school and they haven't got their first job yet. Um, we want to create a way for that person to come to the class because the um, that's one of the people who is very, very important to me personally. And so we always create a um, pay what you can so that people that don't have money are able to get to the classes as well. I, I want to be sure to um, voice my opinion here and that I think that having a price for a class or a they do cost money. It's important for people to pay. And sometimes we think that things should be free, but actually nothing is really free. So, and I think that what you're doing looks like it's adding value to someone's life. So there needs to be a cost there, like you say, to sustain that. And I support that. And um, in fact, I'm really pleased when I look back, you know, from 2013 to you spend um, over two years now that your organization's been going and it's, you have sustained it. So that makes shows that that model is successful. And I don't think a freebie model necessarily can be because then it relies on, you know, people actually volunteering so much that people burn out sometimes that way. And you, so your ability to hire or to pay people is important. It allows flexibility for them also. And that's uh, what I'm trying to do is get to the point where um, we can have a small space of our own. Uh, so instead of running the thing out of uh, out of my wonderful basement uh, and renting spaces, um, I'd like to get to the point where we have a home away from home uh, for the Software Freedom School, and that will allow us to build a consistent studio and stuff like that. But uh, that's a long-term plan. And then maybe someday I could even do daytime work for SFS. That would be really great. So the um, original Software Freedom School was held like in the woods. Is that correct? Or at, uh, um, out, outside? And that's part of what I read in this master document. Can you explain about that? Yeah. Linux camp we do at Snow Mountain Ranch in August every year. And it's our biggest event. Um, we haven't made that one pay what you can yet. Everything else we've done has been um, this price or pay what you can, or, or frequently we've done events where it's just pay what you can, which, as I, like I said, turns out not to generate deep revenue, and so that's not going to be a sustainable model for us. Um, the uh, Linux camp is the one that we haven't figured out how to make it pay what you can um, yet, uh, we will. Um, but it's a four-day deep retreat. We rent a cabin up at Snowmont Ranch in uh, YMCA, Colorado. Uh, YMCA of the Rockies, that's what they call themselves. But anyway, it's a beautiful, beautiful spot. And so we go up there for four days. 
with about a dozen junior Linux assignments, and we try to get them ready for their certification exam and also teach real world skills. The primary job is to teach the real world skills. And then the secondary job is if we can get them past the exam and get them a certification as well, then that's great too. Um, we're up there for solid days. We uh, get up and my beautiful wife makes a delicious breakfast and lunch and dinner and keeps us fed all day long. Um, I start teaching at about nine o'clock. A lot of guys go out and do a sunrise bike ride or a sunrise hike. Um, the late start lets, lets everybody do whatever they want to do in the morning, including sleeping in. Um, and like I said, she keeps us fed. Uh, we work hard for a few hours uh, doing labs and learning about uh, various many things. And then usually we'll do a walk at lunch, around lunchtime, um, and go out and enjoy the beautiful scenery. And then we come back and work hard in the afternoon, do more labs. Uh, and then around six o'clock or sometimes seven o'clock, I'll knock off, uh, stop teaching for the day. But it is so exciting and fun and immersive, and I'm not quite sure why, but it, it, I'm, I'm glad that it happens and it's wonderful. Um, two or three of the students will always end up hacking on this, the materials that we learned that day until nine or 10 o'clock at night. And that's really thrilling and satisfying for me as an instructor that my students have become so excited by what it was that we learned today that that they played with it even after a hard day of training um and and but you know most of us uh decide to uh, knock off with the technical when we play board games or go for an evening hike or whatever but it's great it's uh, four days away from everything and uh sometimes you come out of it with new friends you definitely come out with new knowledge so what would the average age be of the students there and what average or what age group is welcome? Um, all ages are welcome. Absolutely. Um, from 13 to 133. Uh, I would say that our average age is 35. <laughs> and that's a guess. Um, but I know that we've had guys in their middle 20s and gals in their middle 30s and guys in their middle 40s. Um, so we've definitely hit all of those decades. Uh, I, don't, I don't know if we've gotten anybody pre-20 or after 50 yet, but uh, I look forward to that. The, the only... The only thing that you have to have is uh, curiosity and, um, well, for that particular class, uh, the cost of entry. So in next year, what would the cost of entry be for the um, Software Freedoms class or what it, uh, Linux Camp? Linux Camp? Linux Camp. Okay, so Software Freedom School is the, it's the whole thing, it's the whole project. Linux Camp is this particular show that we do um, in August uh, for four days. Uh, the full price is around $2,500. We're 
But what we do is we discount that in various ways that make life easier for David Wilson and the school. Um, so we discount it for people that sign up early because we really want to know way before the class how many people we're going to have. And so we give a discount for that. We, we incentivize that so that we know what size cabins are rent for, and, and how much food to buy and stuff like that. Um, we also prefer that people bring their own very strong laptop. And so we give a discount for that. Uh, and the, oh good Lord, I've forgotten what the last discount is. Uh, at any rate, there is another discount. Um, uh, and so the goal is always to get the price down to like 1995 for the people that do all of the things that I really want them to do, bring their own laptops, sign up early. Um, and then the other thing, whatever the other thing is. It, it actually is probably in that document that you were looking at. Yeah, I I can't pick it out right now, but the um, I was going to ask you, can you um, tell us some success stories from people who've attended the Linux camp? Um, I can't name names, but I can tell you that one of the ladies um, got her dream job shortly after coming to Linux camp. Um, another, I, I constantly hear people tell me how fun it was, and that's great. Um, and I, you know, I love that. Um, and that those are the two things that I always ask after any event, whether it's four days or four hours, is did you have fun and did you learn something? And as long as both of those things happen, I, as an instructor, I'm pretty satisfied. Um, so we had one gal who, who definitely told me that she got her dream job. Um, I've had people uh, say that they were able to change how they were doing particular things at work um, because of something that they learned at, uh, at Linux camp. They were either able to automate away some part of their job or they were able to um, change their strategy. And had a lot of a lot of people um, decide to get involved with SFS more closely after Linux camp and um, you know teach for us or uh, whatever. I was going to ask what would be the minimum requirement for someone's skill level that you would want for them to attend this Linux camp. So this is my recommendation, and it's it's not a requirement, but my recommendation is that. Anybody wanting to come to Linux Camp has 1,000 hours of using and administering Linux before they come to Linux Camp. Um, that's, the, that's the experience level that is going to get the most value out of Linux Camp. Person with less experience, but uh, high aptitude and high interest is going to be able to get value out of Linux Camp also but they're going to get worked a little harder and um, and there, there's no way that they're gonna be able to draw as much out of it because they're going to be um, paying more attention to the trees instead of the structure of the forest, so to speak. Explain what administering Linux, the thousand hours of that would be. Um, so if, you, if you're running your own system and building your own systems and um, Maybe you put up your own web server, or you put up your own database server, or you put up own, uh, 
file server, or you do this at work, um, that's the thousand hours that I'm looking for. Um, it doesn't necessarily have to be professional. It certainly doesn't have to be professional systems administration. Uh, volunteer systems administration is good and home systems administration is also fine. The point is that you have built the machines. Um, you've built some machines and managed some machines that were Linux based yourself or at least you help someone else to um, build and manage Linux machines because that's what systems administration really is is the building management um, the building and ongoing management of Linux machines uh, and workstations are, are similar enough to servers that uh, you know if a person if all they've ever done is um, built and managed their own Linux-based laptops, but they've provided some services from those laptops, then that's, that's going to be another experience. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, I was trying to see if there's anything else that I wanted to ask you. I want to say I really like your project, and I think it's a real um, interesting and innovative project. And Oh, I just I just don't have any other questions for you right now. Let's see. I guess you have a G plus page, correct? And then do you have Twitter and Facebook? Uh, we have a yeah. We've got a Google plus page. We've got a Facebook group, um, and we just started our Twitter account. Um, and we're on. We just got onto Meetup as well. Uh, so, and then we're. I'm in the process of breaking our own web page so uh it's a little bit dorked right now but um we're so <laughs> our our online presence could use an online presence manager so if someone out there listening to this is uh skilled in such things come and take this out of my incompetent hands um the uh or or at least uh teach my incompetent hands uh to to do these things better like I said, we have a Facebook group. Um, we do have a Google Plus page. Uh, we just got our Twitter. We just got our Meetup, and um, but our home and where we really want people to um, the web page so free.us. The two places that uh, I, I'd like to have people join us um, is if they want to join the conversation, please get on our mailing list. Uh, there are links on our website. Um, if they want to get involved in a higher speed conversation, you can join us in IRC, um, and there's a link for that on our website. Uh, on the mailing list, I send out a newsletter every week, um, or, or actually, I won't be doing it. I'm transferring that to Jeffrey Scalza. Uh, one of the volunteers is taking over on the newsletter. Thank God for him, because there's only so much one guy can do. I really have appreciated the efforts you've put into this, and I hope that your, um, as your plans are to expand and, um, you know, solidify things, goes good. And I think you've got a good model. And I want to thank you for joining me today to talk to the Hacker Public Radio audience about this. Thank you for interviewing me. It's really been a pleasure. I, I do want to point out to you and to the audience that Hacker Public Radio is a 
technology podcast where the listeners are the contributors, and I just happen to be a listener, so I do make some contributions. And the um, so, if you have a subject matter you want to get online or share with our listeners, you, anyone that's a listener, can make an episode up, and you can find all about that at hackerpublicradio.org. Thank you again, David Wilson. You've been listening to Hacker Public Radio at hackerpublicradio.org. We are a community podcast network that releases shows every weekday, Monday through Friday. Today's show, like all our shows, was contributed by an HBR listener like yourself. If you ever thought of recording a podcast, then click on our contribute link to find out how easy it really is. Hacker Public Radio was founded by the Digital Dog Pound and the Infonomicon Computer Club and is part of the binary revolution at binrev.com. If you have comments on today's show, please email the host directly, leave a comment on the website or record a follow-up episode yourself. Unless otherwise stated, today's show is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 license.